we continue in our theme, the themes of Advent, if you weren't here last week, what we're doing each week is taking the historic themes of Advent and then each Sunday preaching through as we get closer and closer to uh, Christmas morning. And the theme for today is actually the theme of love. Just by, again, way of reminder, what we're doing each week in this series is we're taking the, this, this theme taught in the Old Testament with anticipation and then showing how Jesus fulfills that. And then, because Jesus did fulfill it 2,000 years ago, for those of us who live today, we anticipate Jesus' future coming. His first advent gives us anticipation and confidence that there is going to be a second advent. Or, or if I could word it this way, what advent reminds us of is that God keeps his promises. Amen? And so as we celebrate each Sunday, we're reminded God keeps his promises. If he promised then, and he promises today, and he fulfilled then, and then he will fill, fulfill today and in the future. So last week we talked on the theme of hope. This week we talk on the theme of love. So the question is, what, what is love? And I know I mentioned something earlier at the start of the service, but when I was thinking about how human beings think about love and even how our culture thinks about love, I went on Google and I said, define love. And uh, Google has their own uh, dictionary they use with Oxford languages. And uh, so this is the definition that Google gave me. To feel deep affection for someone or to feel a deep romantic or sexual attachment to someone. Now I, when I read either of those definitions, was actually pretty disappointed and disheartened because all I see here in the definition is deep feeling. That's it. And I think that our culture, especially in our day, Everything revolves around the feeling. Whatever we feel must be real. So if I feel attraction to this thing or to this person, then I must love them. And if I don't feel it, then I must not love them. But that, that can't be all there is to love. You know, I, as a pastor, have spent many hours with different couples and marital relationships where the one spouse has been unfaithful in all sorts of ways, and yet that spouse will ardently argue that they love their spouse. Do they really love their spouse, or do they just feel a deep attachment to them? Now, some of you might know where I'm going with this, and you say, that's right, it's not all about feeling. And that goes to my illustration at the beginning of the service. You might say, it's just about commitment. Love is commitment. But again, if you asked me if I love my wife and I said I have persevered with great endurance with her, you would say, that's not love, right? Hopefully, you did. You said it at the beginning of the service. That's not love. You can't love somebody that you don't like. Did you hear that? Like, how can you love God if you don't like him? How can, you, how can I love my spouse if I don't like her? What we see, what I think I see, is that 
that one Christmas hymn, Oh, Come Let Us Adore Him, is onto something. That, that, that love involves not either or, but it involves both desire and commitment. Let's adore God. Let's love him. But also, that's what God teaches us about his love. How many of you are familiar with the Jesus Storybook Bible? Raise your hand. Many people. Um, we pass that out at times with uh, baby dedications that we have. In, in the Jesus Storybook Bible, in the very first story, the author brings out a long phrase that seeks to define the Old Testament word for uh, love. A special word for God's love for his people. And the author defines it this way. You're, if you've read the book to your kids, kids, if you've read the book, you're going you're gonna to remember this. That God's love is never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's, that's God's love. Now, I want to be a little bit more precise than the Jesus Storybook Bible. So I went to a Hebrew dictionary to look up this, this specific word for love. There's, there's different words in Hebrew that are love, but there's a very specific word for love that we're talking about today that God uses to continually remind his people that he, uh, he holds them precious to him and dear and cares for them. And this word has said, uh, the basic dictionary, Hebrew dictionary definition is an unfailing kind of love, kindness, or goodness often used of God's love that is related to faithfulness to his covenant. That's the sense of the word, okay? It, it, it can be defined as desire, or, or in translations, it can be translated as desire, zeal, love, kindness, benevolence. What it means is unfailing kind of love, kindness, or goodness, often used of God's love that's related to faithfulness to his covenant. What we have embedded in this Hebrew word for love, and even if we go into the Greek word for agape, that many of you have probably heard of before, embedded in that is delight and commitment. Delight and commitment. And it's not that, if we just look at this definition, it's not that God delights in us because we have done so many great things or we're very useful to God or God needs us. You know that, right? God's love is not dependent on what we do. Praise God. God's love is, is dependent on himself. God loves because he loves. And he loves to love because he's love. This should astound us. So today, the main idea of the sermon is this. It's a little bit longer. God's love sustained his people and pointed forward to love coming in the flesh. Who grants people God's love to share in the world for all eternity future? So I know this is long, and what I'm going to do this week is just what I did last week, break down the main idea so that we seek to understand this. So we're going to start with this first section. God's love sustained his people and pointed forward to love coming in the flesh. A few years ago, I was reading through Genesis, and for some reason, as I was reading more slowly through Genesis that time, I was, I, I, I became more in awe with the creation story, and, and was, my emotions were elevated as I thought about the majesty 
of creation, thinking about how beautiful the Garden of Eden uh, must have been. No sin, no brokenness, just unrestrained, perfect growth and multiplication. Beautiful stones, beautiful metals, life-giving rivers. Then Adam and Eve in glorious innocence. There's no victimization. There's no power plays. It's perfection. It's sinlessness. For whatever reason, that time when I read the creation story, I just longed to know, what would have that been like? Just to sit in (laughs) and experience. God's love was on display in creating all of this and then giving Adam and Eve this beautiful privilege to be able to revel in and image forth his glory. Now, we don't know how long it took for Eve and Adam to rebel, but we know that they did. Eve longed to eat the fruit from the forbidden tree because she thought it was going to give her something that she needed. She thought it was going to give her something that she was missing out on. That was the temptation of the serpent, was it not? And that's, that's, that's the essence of all temptation. When we're tempted to believe, oh, God's keeping something from me, and I cannot believe that God would keep something from me that would make me so happy, or that God would keep something from me that I feel like it would fulfill me. We've all experienced that kind of temptation. Eve believes the lie instead of trusting God's goodness and love. She trusts herself. Adam trusts himself. And immediately we see fear rushes in for Adam and Eve. Fear comes in and they lose their innocence. They realize their nakedness and they sow fig leaves for themselves to cover themselves up. As I think about that story, I'm reminded of 1 John 4 passage that we just read earlier. And in verse 18 of 1 John 4, we see this. There is no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Adam and Eve were experiencing the love of God in the garden, weren't they? Even though that word love is not showing up there, what we do see in the story is that all of a sudden, they went from no fear to fear. And what does that mean? When fear enters in, there's not love. Love has been lost. Love has been lost in the garden. Why? Because they rejected love. They rejected life. Therefore, they experienced fear because punishment has come. You can't, as I've said so many times before, you can't reject life and have life. And so they know punishment is there, so fear rushes in. Now we do know God does declare punishment to them, but he also gives this promise of hope, like what we talked about last week. What I want us to see, though, is that promise of hope that God gave, the promise that there was going to be a seed of the woman that's going to crush the serpent, and he's going to crush the serpent by conquering sin and death. That promise of hope has its foundation in love. God gives that promise because he loves. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? We're going we're to we're uh, unpack that a little bit more. 
But we see immediately, as God punishes, he also gives hope, and we know he gives that hope because he loves. Now, just because God gives a promise of hope, and just because God loves, does not mean everything was solved at that point in time. We continue reading in Genesis, and we find out about the story of Cain and Abel, and they were perfect brothers, right? No. Maybe, maybe they were close at some point in time, but, you know, murder has a way of separating, okay? That's not love. Cain murders his brother. You move on, and you get to Lamech. Lamech rejoices. He sings a song at how vindictive he can be. Don't mess with me. My vengeance is greater than anybody else. And he says it to his multiple wives in a way to threaten them that he has power. You move on, you get into Noah's day. And once we get to Noah's day, we know what the scriptures say about the people in Noah's day, but I want you to hear God's heart in Noah's day. Just read this, this one verse from Genesis 6. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now, when you hear that and you just hear that in the English, you might hear, uh, you, you might even interpret a tone of God that's not there. You might think God is just saying, I'm going to blot these people out. I hate them. That's not it. This Hebrew word for sorry the Hebrew word for sorry here refers to consoling oneself and having empathy. Like God looks at the world and says, they have messed themselves up so much. They, they have rejected love. They have rejected life. And what they're embracing is hatred and death. And in a sense saying, I need to put them out of their misery. I'm sorry that I made them. That's what the word sorry entails in it. Even though we don't have the word love there, can you see a love of God? That kind of reminds us like Ezekiel when God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God's sorrowful. Humanity has pursued death. But the story continues even after the flood. People continue on in sin. And then we get to a point in Genesis where we get to the first mention of the word, this word for love. It's very interesting, the first mentionings of this word for love, where it shows up. Do you remember uh, last week when I was preaching and I talked about hope? And I, I said that when Moses writes the book of Genesis, he, he's very intrigued by genealogies. Do you remember me saying that? And, and if you weren't here, no, you don't remember. And the reason why is because uh, the serpent crusher is coming. And so we want to know the lineage from where this one is going to come. And we get to Abraham, and this seed of the woman is going to now come through Abraham because God made a promise to Abraham that through his seed, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed, okay? You're all following me at this point, okay? And then in the story, in one of the stories of Abraham's life, the first mention of this covenant-keeping love of God shows up. And I just want you for a moment just to take a guess. What story do you think it shows up in first? Just take a guess in your mind. You don't have to say it out loud. Just guess in your mind. And it's in the story of Lot. That's the first mention 
of this love. It's in the story where, if, if you know the story of Lot, he lived in Sodom, and Sodom is going to be destroyed. God tells Abraham Sodom is going to be destroyed, and Abraham prays and pleads, God, if there's this many righteous people, will you destroy? If there's this many, if there's this many, if there's only five, are you going to destroy? I'm pretty sure Abraham knows that Lot's in that city. Now, Abraham, being the one that through him all the nations are going to be blessed, is also a type of that future serpent crusher. Meaning that he's interceding for the righteous, just like Christ intercedes for the righteous today. And he's praying, and he's praying, God, if there's just this many, will you rescue? And then we get to Lot, the angels come in, they take his family out, and we hear Lot's words to the angel. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. And then he says, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. <laughs> now you say, where's love? Where's the word love there? That's a good question, because in the English, it's not there. But in the Hebrew, it is. It's the word for kindness, great kindness. You have shown me steadfast love. The first mentioning of God's covenant love is with a, is with a believer who is drifting and straying. And when we read the story, we really feel like he should be punished too. Right? But the first mentioning of God's steadfast love is with a rebellious child. Because God loves to save. God loves to rescue. God loves to show his steadfast love. How can he do that? How can he show this, this steadfast love? Well, let's go to the second mention of steadfast love in Genesis. And it's with Abraham as well. And the second mention of the steadfast love comes in the story where Abraham's older and he tells his servant, go find a wife for Isaac. And the servant prays four times, repeats the prayer multiple times. He says, and asks the Lord that God would show and not forsake his steadfast love to his master Abraham. He's just going to find a wife. God, please, 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 don't forsake your steadfast love to Abraham. What, why is he saying that? Because this is a covenant love. This is a love that's on the basis of promises that God has made. Abraham is not the seed. He's not the one. Clearly, Isaac is not the one either. But God has to fulfill this promise, right? And so the servant seems to know this. Don't forsake the covenant you made. May your love rest on this decision that this woman would be the one that you choose. That she would bring about the next generation. How can God delight in saving people? Well, he delights in bringing the serpent crusher. And the serpent crusher will come. And because of him, he will save all who end up trusting in him. You see that in Genesis already, right in the beginning. Steadfast love. And then, then this word shows up increasingly, I would say, and throughout all of the Old Testament. God's steadfast love. We get to Exodus 34. This should be some familiar verses. 
The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Remember those verses? If you were here a couple of months ago, we studied this out in the fall time frame. This is God's glory. God's glory is revealed through showing mercy through judgment. That's steadfast love. And you see steadfast love shows up twice in those verses. God is committed to show his mercy. And that his mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy, by the way, can also be a translation of this word for steadfast love. And so we eventually get to the songbook of Israel. God is very, I, I, I word it this way, God, God is very purposeful and desirous that his people would know his love. Because when we get to the book of Psalms, this is a psalm book of Israel. Songs are very important in getting things stuck in our heads, right? Sometimes we hate it when it gets stuck in our head. Other times we love it. But it takes the truth into our minds, and, and by God's grace, it can affect us, mind, body, soul, spirit, emotions, will. In the Psalms, this word for love shows up around 125 times. How many chapters are there in the Psalms? Do you know? 150. So 125 times, steadfast love shows up. Do you think God wants Israel to know that he loves? Do you, think, do you think he wants his people to know that his love is secure? Do you? Some people are nodding. But yes. And Christian today, if you've trusted in God, do you think God wants you to know that he's a God of love and grace towards his people? Do you think he wants you to know he loves you? Yes. He repeats it over and over and over again. And then there's one psalm in particular that just can't stop repeating. If you don't like songs that repeat, you won't like this psalm. But I hope you do love this psalm. It's actually Psalm 136. And I'm going to read some portions of Psalm 136. And actually, we read it earlier, but I want you to respond with me in this as I read. Because I think that's the purpose and that's the intent of this one. So you see this right here. Whenever you see, for his steadfast love endures forever, I want you to say it with me, okay? Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. The psalm begins, it begins simply by declaring God's character. And I, I want you to notice the word for. That word for can also be translated as because. Here's the reason why we're giving thanks. The reason we give thanks is because what? His steadfast love endures forever. Why is God good? The psalmist says. The psalmist says, we know God is good because his steadfast love endures forever. God's love is the foundation of everything he does. His love is there. 
His steadfast love supports. Give thanks to the God who is over all the idols and over all of the rulers of the world because unlike worldly rulers and unlike idols who can't do anything, God has a love that endures forever beyond all lifetimes. Now the psalm goes on and gets more personal with creation and then with Israel. And so I want us to do the same thing. I'm going to read a couple of verses here. To him who alone does great wonders, thus love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. So we begin here with the power of creation. No one can create like God. God is the uncreated creator. And he brings all things to be. What some people might think is when they look at the power of creation, they will immediately go to uh, tremendous fear because anyone who has that kind of power can destroy you. Can you understand why we would think that? But, but this psalm says God didn't create all of this so that Adam and Eve would say, he could destroy me. Why did he create it? He created it to show his steadfast love that endures forever. He created it to reveal his majesty in this unique, unknown to us anymore kind of love. The Psalms continue to speak of creation, but then the psalmist moves on to the nation of Israel. And we're going to do the same thing. He says, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever, and brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. The Psalms continue, this, this Psalm continues to speak of God rescuing Israel from Egypt. And then goes on to talk about God rescuing them through the Red Sea. Then the psalm moves beyond the wilderness wanderings and Israel enters into the promised land. To him who struck down great kings. What we see in this psalm, again, is that God's steadfast love is foundational for all that he does. In other words, God's love sustained his people in all of life. And then this psalm ends by reminding us that God's steadfast love continues, thus pointing us to the reality that love, love will continue on and love will come. And this psalm is to be sung no matter what season Israel is going through. Does that make sense? The psalm should be referred to whether the Israelites are in Babylonian captivity or whether they're back in the land and yet God has not descended on the temple with any type of blessing. God's steadfast love endures forever. Now listen, you can read that psalm, and we can read it with our 2020 vision looking back. You know when we say hindsight is 2020? Like, oh yes, look at, oh, he rescued them in the Red Sea, he took care of them in the wilderness, his steadfast love endures forever. And that's true, right? But, but I want you to think about how did the people feel in those moments? You know, when, when they're facing the Red Sea, what do they say? 
What, what, what do they accuse God of? What do they accuse Moses of? You've brought us out here so that we die. Is that what God wants to do? He rescues us from Egypt to kill us. Yay. They were not saying his steadfast love endures forever. But was God's steadfast love enduring there? Was it? Yes, it was. And then they go through, they go through the waters of the Red Sea, and then they party. Yay! You know, and then they're out in the wilderness for a little bit longer. Oh my goodness, where's the good food? I have something. They weren't thinking God's steadfast love endures forever. But was God's steadfast love there? Now I want to make application to us because do we go through times where we might question God? What are you doing? Why is this happening? Does God love me anymore? It seems like God has brought me here just to kill me. You probably had some of those very similar thoughts. But God's steadfast love endures forever, and God's steadfast love is undergirding even the circumstances you're in right now. Praise God. And God says he has this written for the people to remind their hearts and souls. God's love never changes. God's love secures you. And as you're anticipating the serpent crusher to come, his love is with you. He loves to save rebels, and he will through the seed of the woman. His steadfast love endures forever. And then finally, love came. 2,000 years ago, and one of the simplest reminders of God's love is John 3, 16. For God so loved. The, the word for so actually can be translated, for God loved the world in this way. God so loved the world. What do we read? That he, what? Gave his one and only son. I want you to think about those words as it relates to Advent, as it relates to Christmas. And then think to Psalm 136 again. Psalm 136 ends this way. It is he who remembered us in our low estate, for his steadfast love endures forever, and rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. He remembers our low estate. Isn't that even what Mary herself said when she found out that she was holding the Messiah in her womb? That you know those of low estate and you raise them up. Why does he do that? Why did he send the Messiah? Why did he send Jesus? Because of steadfast love. That's why. In John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. God revealed his love perfectly by sending 
you know, some translations say only begotten, other translations say one and only son, but part of the idea of that phrase is that God sent his great pleasure into this world, his son. Into a world that hated him, he sent his son to come in the form of a baby into a world that rejects God. That's how much God loves the world that he sent, he gave his son. So that anyone who would believe on him, meaning anyone who would not trust themselves like Adam and Eve did, but anyone who would turn to God in Christ and trust him, you would have eternal life. How can you have eternal life? How can God give that eternal life? Because he has a steadfast love that endures forever. If God gives you his steadfast love that endures forever, guess what that means for your life? It has to go on forever. Because God can't stop loving you. Isn't that amazing? He, he delights in giving life and love. And so John continues, even in this passage, to say that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So Jesus didn't come in order to condemn. We're already condemned. We're already sinners. But Jesus came in order to take that condemnation on himself, to live the life that Adam didn't live, and to live in perfection all the way from childhood, and then on the cross be crushed in order to conquer over sin and death. And so through his death, he conquered over sin, and through his resurrection, he conquered over death. And he's risen from the dead. He's ascended up into heaven. But I want you to hear these words. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, do you remember one of the words that Jesus said? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In the Old Testament, many times that word, that strong word for love is connected to forgive. You, do you realize when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he didn't say, okay, the deed is done. I did it. My duty's over. When he said forgive, since Jesus is God the Son and shares the heart of God, then he would say that with steadfast love. He loved you, Christian, so much that he cried out, forgive them. Forgive them. Now, I've accomplished this. Now, if you are a follower of Christ, you could be thinking, okay, what does all of this have to do then with me today? How does this apply? Okay, I see that love was foretold and Jesus came and he has given a greater love than we could ever imagine, a steadfast love that lasts forever so that then we can have eternal life. But Jesus did that 2,000 years ago. But we've also been saying within this study in Advent, we're seeing that since God kept his promises then, he keeps it today. So what's the application and implication for us today? Because Jesus is coming again, right? Right? Yeah. So, so how does this love apply to us now? That takes us to that second part of the main idea that we'll just comment on briefly. God grants people God's love to share in the world for all eternity future. If you have trusted in Christ, 
you have already begun to be able to share in God's love and to share God's love with one another in this world. And because God's love is steadfast and will endure forever, you will experience God's love and share his love forever. And that is emphasized by John. I mentioned John 4, 1 John 4 at the beginning of the sermon. I'm going to close with mentioning it. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him, love and light. He sent his son so that we could live. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. John is simply reiterating what I just said. God sent his love so that we could experience it and commune with God and then commune with one another. That's the call. Until we see Jesus face to face and after that we have fellowship with other believers who have experienced God's love and then we can share in God's love together. But again, remember, God didn't give us this love because we were so impressive. It says here in the text, not that we have loved God, We weren't the ones that initiated it. God loves us most. God loves us best. God loved us first. And so therefore, John says, since God has loved us in this way, we ought to love one another. We ought to be sharing in it. If you are someone who claims to be a Christian and you say, oh, I have God's love, and you never fellowship with Christians or barely fellowship with Christians, Do you really love God's love? Do you really love God? Because I don't know about you, but when I really enjoy something, I share it with people. Do you? I mean, I know this is such a trite illustration, but you know how much I love food, right? If I taste something delicious, try this. You've got to. Have you ever done that before? If you've experienced God's love, if you know what Advent means, if you know what Jesus has done in coming the first time, then you would share it with one another and what God is teaching you and how God is growing you. And as you share that love with other people, they share it back with you and we experience more and more and more of the love of God and the love of God is perfected amongst us until we see God face to face someday. Amen? God's love affects us. So John goes on. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he's given us the Spirit. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Now there's so much to these verses. But you see that instead of possessing fear, fear of judgment, what believers have, what believers now have in them is the spirit to perfect in us the love of God. Until he comes again. And it's a steadfast love because he loved us first. It's a steadfast love 
because he loves us because he loves us. And so now we can love in light of that. So Ventura, I agree with the psalmist. Give thanks. Give thanks to the God of gods. Rejoice. God's steadfast love undergirds every aspect of your life, even the greatest trials you have or will ever experience. His love endures. If you feel like you're in a wilderness, or if you feel you're disobedient, or you felt discouraged, or you feel overjoyed and so happy today, his steadfast love endures. Whatever your circumstances, they don't define God's love. May God's love define the circumstances. God's steadfast love ought to secure you in all of life. You have his love and you can look forward with confidence knowing the spirit will perfect God's love in you until the day that love comes again in all his glory and experience and live out his perfect love for all eternity future. So truly, God's love sustained his people and pointed forward to love coming in the flesh. He who grants people God's love to be shared to the world for all eternity future. And in light of this, I want to take us back to that remembrance of Psalm 136 as it points forward to Jesus. The end of Psalm 136, it is he who remembered us in our low estate and rescued us from our foes. He who gives food to all flesh. What is our food? What is our eternal nourishment? Christ. Jesus came. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus lived again and ascended. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said to them, Peace be with you.